The Firebender's Guide to Living Life After Destiny Written by Chuffy Stilton Read by Meisinger Zuko arrived in the practice yard early. He liked mornings. Always had. But since becoming Fire Lord, the dawn training hours had become his favorite part of the day. This yard was older and shabbier than the new ones in the eastern wing, next to the Imperial Firebender's quarters. Its stone tiles were cracked. One wall was entirely engulfed by kudzu vines that had to be constantly burned back to prevent it spreading, but Zuko liked it. It was a place untouched by memories, or at least by Zuko's memories. In his childhood, the yard had been reserved for Iroh and Luten as the crown prince and his heir. After Luten's death and the construction of the new practice yards, this one had been locked up. It had languished, half-forgotten, until Zuko passed by one day and opened it out of curiosity, his new footsteps disturbing old ghosts in the stone. The palace was like this sometimes, full of secrets and hidden corners. In the odd period between his betrayal in Bossingse and his confrontation with Ozai on the day of the eclipse, Zuko had been haunted by the notion that the palace itself was wrong somehow. Everything had looked skewed. The columns too low, his rooms too large, reality out of proportion to Zuko's memory. He kept taking the wrong turns, blundering into tea rooms when he was looking for the council chamber, the armory when he was looking for the kitchens. Once, he asked the servants if they had renovated since he was away. He couldn't make himself say the word banished, and the servants reassured him that no, nothing was changed. It had all been in Zuko's head. It was Zuko who had changed. Zuko shook his head and cleared his thoughts. He was trying to stop dwelling on the past. Breathing in, he let his hands rise to face his shoulders. Breathing out, he turned his palms downwards and pushed them down to thigh level. He repeated the cycle for a couple of minutes, trying to reach a level of calm that refused to come. He kept trying, but then he heard footsteps approaching from beyond the gate and his concentration broke entirely. For appearance's sake, he finished one last round of breathing before turning around. Sokka Tousled and sleepy-looking, staggered in with a creak of the gates. He gave a groan in response to Zuko's greeting and flopped onto one of the stone benches by the side of the ring. "'Don't you dare be so chipper at this time in the morning,' he said, his voice muffled by the arm he threw across his face. No one had ever called Zuko chipper before. "'Are you all right?' Zuko asked. And then, seeing the sallow tinge of Sokka's face up close, added, Was it the plum liquor at dinner, or the wine afterwards? Sokka gave another groan. Both. Were you just practicing? 
Throw a fireball at me and let me be incinerated in peace. Katara might finally keep her old promise to end me, said Zuko wryly. Find another firebender. But you're the only one around, Sokka said. He rolled over on one side and propped his head up. Please, pretty please, just one teeny tiny fireball. I'll get you some tea, Zuko said, and got up. Try not to throw up. The decorative stone frieze here is four centuries old. Despite the years of neglect, a fountain in the far corner of the yard still bubbled with cold, clear water. There were no servants around. Zuko had long-standing instructions for no one to bother him during the mornings, so he ran and fetched the simple tea set he kept in his own chambers, a gift from Iroh. He filled the teapot with water from the fountain, and then, holding the handle in one hand, he lifted the pot to his mouth and breathed out a controlled burst of heat that brought the water to an instant roiling boil. His uncle would shudder at the sight. He always insisted that water tastes different when it was heated with bending. But Uncle Iroh wasn't here, and Zuko doubted Sokka would notice, or care. He brought two steaming cups and a jug of cold water from the fountain back to the bench. Here, he told Sokka, drink this. I'm not getting up again, said Sokka. He let one of his arms flop dramatically to one side. Pour it into my mouth and let me choke in peace. It's hot. So pour it slowly. Zuko blew on the surface of the liquid. A normal breath this time to cool it down. Here it comes. Sokka cracked an eye open. What are you... Ah! What are you doing? Giving you tea, said Zuko his hand pausing over Sokka's head, the cup in its half-tilted position. Sokka bolted upright and snatched the cup away from Zuko. "'You're a menace,' he said, and drained the contents in one go. Zuko watched him carefully. The tea was one of Iroh's special blends, and a best-seller on the mornings after festival nights. The only thing more powerful than its effect was its taste, which can only charitably be described as pungent. It didn't take first-time drinkers by surprise so much as take them hostage until their body gave up its hangover as ransom. Sokka's face was a sight to behold. Ugh, he spluttered once he recovered. What did you put in this? Zuko took a small sip from his own cup. It's uncle's secret mix. My best guess is dried ginger and fermented soybeans. Sokka looked stunned. It's spicy. That might be red chilies on top of the ginger. And you're not even experiencing the authentic version. Uncle usually cracks a raw egg in the cup before serving. Sokka shuddered. Just when I thought the man couldn't possibly surprise me anymore, he said. He swished his mouth out with water from the jug and drank the rest in long gulps. What else did I expect from a guy who's part of a top-secret pie show cult? Where do you think he got this recipe from? White Lotus secret recipe or his wild playboy past? I don't know, said Zuko. He'd never thought about it before. 
I guess I never asked. Zuko turned his face up to the weak morning sunlight. The air was sticky with humidity. The sky above a mottled oyster shell hung thick with clouds. He took another sip and looked over to see Sokka squinting at him suspiciously. Wait a minute, Sokka said slowly. You've barely had any of the tea. So? You were sitting next to me all night. There's no way you've drank any less than I did. How are you so... so normal? Probably my superior and manlier constitution at work, Zuko said deadpan. Sokka squinted at him even harder. Nice try. What's the secret? What secret? If you want me to tell you about a secret plot unfolding at the heart of your nation's government, then you better have something to offer in return, said Sokka. What's your secret? He punctuated his question with a poke to the ribs, almost making Zuko drop his cup. Zuko ducked out of his reach, stood up and crossed his arms. What did you find out last night? Tell me that first. You tell first. No, you. I asked first, said Sokka, crossing his arms too and pouting up at Zuko, his blue eyes wide. It was such a stupid and immature argument for the leader of the Fire Nation to be having that Zuko could feel himself crumpling like wet paper. This stays between us, understand? Sokka nodded, and Zuko said reluctantly, It's all firebending. What? I used the breath of fire. It was easier to demonstrate than to explain. Watch. He showed Sokka his cup, still half-filled with tea, and raised it to his mouth like he had done the teapot. Exhaling, he huffed out a little shoot of flame, making it more visible than normal so Sokka could see. He tilted the cup towards him and increased the heat, taking care to keep it low and direct. The liquid inside bubbled and turned to foul-smelling steam, which Zuko would normally hide by pressing the cup to his mouth, but he lifted it away and showed Sokka, before flipping the empty cup upside down. It works better with alcohol, because it burns quicker. Sokka gaped. That's brilliant, he said, voice hushed with awe. Did Iroh teach you that too? Zuko shook his head. I invented it myself for formal dinners. I needed a way to keep my head clear without offending anyone by refusing a toast. Wouldn't someone see the fire? There are ways to control heat without making a flame, said Zuko. That was just to show you. Sokka picked up the cup and inspected it. Wow, that's seriously the most brilliant thing I've ever seen a firebender do. You saw the Avatar defeat my father, the Fire Lord, on the day of Sozin's Comet, said Zuko. Sokka waved a hand and dropped the cup back on its tray. Once you've spent a year with Aang, that kind of once-in-a-lifetime Avatar stuff gets old pretty fast. That seemed fair. Zuko once devoted one day to poking around some temple ruins with Aang, 
and the next thing he knew, they had discovered a secret civilization and danced an ancient firebending form with two members of a previously thought extinct species. Even chasing Aang at a distance for a year had been exhausting. Now your turn, said Zuko. Tell me what you learned last night. Sokka's expression turned serious. Luan is in serious debt, he said. She acts like she's from a long line of aristocrats, but her family are merchants who made their fortune in trade and bought a title. Their business has been hemorrhaging money since the war ended. She's got a long trail of creditors after her, including the Beifongs, believe it or not. How do you know? I pieced it together from various sources, said Sokka. The agriculture minister of the Grain Commission is particularly chatty once he gets going. That must be the man Sokka was laughing with last night. Zuko frowned, turning the new information over in his mind. What did Luan's family trade in? Food and military supplies, Sokka said grimly. They took contracts from the Fire Navy and acted as the middleman for Earth Kingdom suppliers who refused to sell directly to colonialists. No wonder trade has dropped off. Exactly, said Sokka. A lot of their income vanished overnight when you called the warships back home. But also, it makes her a pretty unlikely person to be giving a patriotic speech like that, doesn't it? Maybe she had a change of heart. Zuko said. Maybe. Stranger things have happened, but it looks suspicious. Even if the villagers are real, why would they ask Luan? She doesn't strike me as the blue spirit type. Zuko didn't choke on air, but it was close. The what? The blue spirit type, you know? The outlaw character who steals from the rich and gives to the poor? I've seen him in a few puppet shows and masked operas the last time I was in the Fire Nation with Toph. He's based off of this wanted poster that was around a few years back. I think he was even shoehorned into that Ember Island play about us. Oh? Zuko managed. He really should be paying more attention to the arts under his reign. Sokka rubbed his chin. He hadn't shaved yet, and the faint shadow from last night had turned into a full-out stubble. Zuko had an odd impulse to rub a fingertip along Sokka's cheek and find out what the rough texture feels like. I like him. The mask is very cool. You know that theater isn't reality, right? Zuko said faintly. Sure, said Sokka. But, anyways, that's not the point. If Luan's sending messages with someone in the Fire Nation court, why are they asking for more reparations to the Earth Kingdom? Ruin the treasury financially? suggested Zuko. Sokka's hair was also a mess. There were strands escaping from his hasty wolf tail, turning wavy in the humidity. He looked like he rolled straight out of bed, which he probably had. Zuko hoped Sokka didn't bump into too many people on his way here. His reputation seemed bad enough without adding his scandalous appearance to the list. Or it could be a plot against you, Sokka mused, and Zuko's attention snapped back to the matter at hand. 
What? Zuko said for what seemed to be the hundredth time that morning. Could be a plot to make you look bad, Sokka said grimly. Ask for something on the last official day of the negotiations, pin it on your honor, and then watch you try to please everyone and fail. It's like trying to navigate between a rock and a glacier. Excuse me? It's a water tribe expression. It means to choose... Choose between two difficult things, I can guess, said Zuko. We say, like, being stuck between the hammer and the anvil. Sokka smiled again, his grim expression vanishing. That's the baby. Anyway, that's all we know for now until I ask around some more today. He got up from the bench, leaving Zuko lost in thought. He once told Ozai that they needed to end the era of war and replace it with an era of peace and kindness. Looking back, Zuko wished he had made a more concrete action plan. Iroh told him that being the Fire Lord was his destiny, but destiny hadn't been much of a guide for things like how to navigate bizarre international conspiracies, or how to salvage his shambling failure of a sex life, or even if Zuko should raise or lower the Omashu grain tariffs, which, shamefully, he would appreciate some guidance on the most. Zuko didn't have a head for numbers. All the trade reports made his head spin. Was this what it was like for every Fire Lord? Did Azulon or Ozai secretly spend most of his time putting out one fire after another, feeling like an imposter making things up as he went along? Zuko couldn't imagine it. Zuko was shaken out of his reverie by Sokka clearing his throat. We better train for a while, or else it'll look suspicious for me to leave our sparring session without a scratch on me. He poked Zuko's ribs again, but gentler this time. Whatever you're brooding about again, it'll seem better after hitting a few things with sticks. To Sokka's disappointment, Zuko didn't want to hit things with sticks. And in any case... The yard was set up for firebending, not swordplay, and there were no practice swords around. Instead, they went through a few loosening and warming stretches together, and then ran a few laps around the yard. They did strengthening exercises that benders and non-benders could do alike, knee bends and press-ups and leg presses mostly. Zuko found a padded straw mat and they refreshed a few basic grappling holds and hand-to-hand -hand patterns adjusting each other's technique. It turned out to be a weak spot for Zuko, who couldn't remember the last time he fought without relying on firebending or his dual broadswords. Sokka, of course, was annoyingly competent and in practice. It must have come from dating a Kyoshi warrior. This is one of the basic tackles Suki taught me, Sokka said. Hope I'm remembering it right. He was standing a few feet away from Zuko, Coming towards him at a run, Sokka hooked one arm into Zuko's and shifted his torso, moving towards the same side as his arm. At the same time, he grabbed Zuko's other elbow and used it to flip Zuko around in midair, forcing him to the ground with his arms pinned. "'Did you get it?' he panted. He had Zuko's arm tucked into the crook of his own and his other hand on Zuko's elbow." The trick is to keep your center of balance low and your opponent pinned. 
Suki says it works the best against benders because they only expect more bending. The dumbest way is the best way. Zuko wondered why Suki never gave him useful advice like this when she was actually his bodyguard, instead of doing funny impressions of particularly rude nobles at court and teasing Zuko over that one time he tried to grow a beard. He could still feel Sokka's breath puffing warmly on his neck. He could only nod. Sokka let go of his hold and tried to stand up, but the sticky heat made their bare skin catch together for a brief second. Zuko closed his eyes and tried to think about something appropriate. Grain tariffs. Council meetings. His crushing duty to atone for a century of colonialism and war. Something that wasn't Sokka and his beautiful ex-girlfriend tussling on the floor. Okay, try to pin me now, said Sokka. Suki and I alternated the offensive and defensive role each time when we practiced. He extended Zuko a hand to help him up. When did Sokka get so tall and so broad across the chest? While Zuko had only grown lankier since adolescence, Sokka had shot up a head and filled out his shoulders. The added bulk suited him. Everything suited him, even the must hair and his unshaven cheeks. Up close, Sokka in general was... nice. Good. Zuko didn't have the right words to describe it, but it was just... good. Zuko should have stayed at the Jasmine Dragon and became a waiter. "'You can attack any time now,' said Sokka. "'Right,' said Zuko, flustered. "'Just trying to catch you off guard.' He rushed Sokka, trying to mimic the clinching hold that Sokka had just demonstrated. The two of them tumbled to the ground. "'Good attempt,' Sokka said, and spat a strand of hair out of his mouth. "'But make sure your knee is locked, and you're using your full weight. "'This way, it's too easy for your opponent to break the hold.' With a brisk move, he shrugged free from Zuko's grip, rolling both of them over so he was pinning Zuko again. "'Let me show you it one more—' He broke off, a puzzled look on his face. Zuko followed his gaze. A small hole had appeared on the left side of Sokka's chest, a rapidly expanding burn that was ripping through the fabric of his shirt, its edges a charred black ring. Beneath it, Sokka's bare flesh sizzled. It was turning red and raw. Moving without thinking, Zuko shrugged off Sokka's weight and spun around in a crouch shielding Sokka with his own body and simultaneously punching a hand in the opposite direction to send out a jet of flame, interrupting the attack on Sokka. Zuko scanned the yard. There, on one of the tiled roofs, a flash of something shining in the weak sunshine, and then a streak of movement as a black figure ducked down the other side of the sloped roof. It looked like they were alone. He could hear Sokka's gasps of pain on the ground, but Zuko couldn't spare his attention. Not yet. Sprinting, he made his way across the yard and jumped on a stone balustrade by the wall, using it to spring up and grab the underside of the outer eave. He flipped himself over, then, scrambling on all fours like a cat, climbed up the roof's diagonal ridge, just in time to see the black figure about to rappel down to the ground on a length of rope. Zuko angled his palm and sent out a slicing wave of fire, breaking off the rope. 
He steadied himself and kicked out one foot, sending a second jet of fire towards the assailant. They were too fast. Zuko's shot went wide. Whoever it was let go of the limp rope and disappeared off the edge. Panting, Zuko ran along the top crest of the roof towards where the assailant had been a moment ago. He looked wildly at the adjacent courtyard below. Nothing. Either they had turned invisible, or, most likely, they were on the underside of the roof, clinging to one of the transverse beams. Without hesitation, Zuko jumped down the full height of the building to the stone tiles below, breaking his fall with a roll and a wide jet of fire already arcing out from his open palm as he sprang up. The assailant was exactly where he had guessed they would be. A shapeless, black shadow crouched in the painted beams above the building's doors. At the sight of Zuko, they leapt out of the way to a secondary beam, narrowly avoiding his jet of fire. They swung to another beam, but not before Zuko caught his first clear glimpse of the assailant. A figure in black, the pommels of twin broadswords visible over one shoulder, and a face that was a theater mask frozen in a blue and white rictus. "'Who are you?' Zuko yelled but the blue spirit was silent behind the mask's leering grin. It raised an arm in an unfamiliar gesture. For a second, Zuko could not understand what was happening, but then a sudden flash of heat surrounded him, making him grunt in surprise. The attacker had just conjured heat without flame, and they were using it as an invisible attack. Zuko could feel the hair on his arms crisping, but he stood his ground, the first thing all firebenders learned as children was how to protect themselves from burning. Zuko had left himself undefended only once in his life, when he was thirteen, and he had vowed to himself never to do it again. The heat and pain might have incapacitated another bender, but Zuko had once been struck by lightning, been caught in the middle of an exploding steel ship. He had gone beyond other people's limits of pain and had come out the other side. He used a move he learned from Toph, raising a thin wall of flame to absorb the energy of the attack, and then pushing the wall up and towards his opponent, giving them nowhere to hide. The assailant jumped down, somersaulting through the wall of fire, but they didn't hit the ground smoothly and crashed against the plinth of a stone lion turtle by the steps. Zuko lunged forward and came within a hand's reach, but an ominous creaking sound rang out from above, freezing him mid-step. The wall of fire had destroyed that section of the lower roof, in the space between one heartbeat and the next. The tops of the supporting columns and side pilaster gave way. A second creak echoed through the courtyard. Zuko rolled over and threw his arms above his head, and then the outer eave of the roof collapsed down over him in a thundering heap. There was a moment of pure shock that usually followed destruction, when the silence itself felt deafening. Zuko staggered up, spitting out a mouthful of dust and ash. He had rolled out of the way just in time from the main body of the collapse. A foot to his left, there was a chunk of timber where his head would have been. He looked around, dizzy from the ringing in his ears. The assailant had landed further from the building than where Zuko was, which left them unscathed by the destruction. The assailant was already running towards the far wall of the empty courtyard, Zuko shot a series of fireballs, but with their head start and Zuko's disorientation, the flames fizzled out well before they reached their target. 
By the time his vision cleared completely, the assailant was already straddling the top of the wall. The blue spirit turned and gave Zuko a little wave, the mask still grinning as though laughing at its own secret joke. Then, whoever it was hopped down from the wall and disappeared out of sight. And just because it was Zuko's luck, the rain clouds chose that minute to break open. A torrent of rain came down, wiping away any tracks the attacker could have left behind. Zuko lunged forward to give chase, but then he stopped himself, reconsidering. Sokka. And with that, we have chapter five. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Thank you to Chuffy Stilton for letting me record this. And again, thank you to my girlfriend for being so supportive, even from far away. If you liked that, please leave a comment or kudos on the story, or you can come yell at me on Tumblr. I'm my own zinger there. And if you like the story itself, please feel free to go let Chuffy Stilton know. Wish you guys could hear how many times it takes me to get these outros smooth. But probably no one's listening anyway. Stay safe and have a good night.